You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome. Happy Time Change Sunday, right? That's today, uh, the one that we really like this time of year. But uh, uh, welcome, everybody. And uh, of course, if you're joining us online, so glad you're here. My name is Morgan. If this is your first time here in person or online, we sure hope, as always, that it's not your last. We are in a series. Maybe you've been tracking with this. Maybe this is your first time. Uh, regardless, we've been saying we've been saying that uh, we, we come to faith in God. We've been taking a look at how we come to faith in God. And we've been saying that we come through a variety of stars points, trying to ask and answer some big questions that our culture asks about faith in God. And we've been saying that faith has a variety of starting points. It has some emotional starting points, cultural starting points, perhaps some rational starting points. And so far we've sort of majored in those first two categories, the categories of emotional, cultural starting points and reasons for faith in God. But starting today and for the next three weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be taking a look at some more of the rational arguments or clues for faith in God. Next week, I'll be making the case for why I believe that faith in the Christian scriptures, the Bible, is reasonable. In two weeks, I'll be making the case, trying to, for why faith in Jesus is reasonable. But today is sort of first things first. Today, we're going to look at why faith in God in general, here's that word again, is reasonable. And the reason I use that word is because, as we've seen and said, that you can't really prove or disprove the existence of God through things like the scientific method alone or by looking through a microscope or a telescope. But not seeing something through a microscope or a telescope, it doesn't inherently prove something's non-existence, right? We've said that. Any more than saying that because the Hubble telescope can't see things like love or mercy or justice or friendship means those things don't exist. But you can make a reasonable case for the existence of those things through other tested proven instruments of discovery, things like philosophy and logic and reason and so forth. So I believe that through looking through the lens of some of those means today, a strong case can be made for the existence of God. And I want you to know, as we get into this, because I'm sort of doing some of the more classical arguments for the existence of God, as we get into this, because of time today, I can't give you all the arguments for all the clues for, nor can I do even justice to the ones that I'm going to give you. So all I'm saying is have a little sympathy and mercy for me today. But let's, let's begin by looking at three strong clues for the existence of God. I'm going to walk you through these. We're going to see today, number one, the faith that it takes to doubt God. Number two, the problems that you have without God. And finally, by seeing the beauty that you see within God. In other words, why believe in God? It's because of the faith that it takes to doubt him, the problems that you have without him, and because of the beauty that you see within him. I'll say this also before I begin. First service, there was a giant ant crawling in my music stand, tried to bite me as I got into this. So um, I hope if that happens today, you see bugs crawling up here, just sort of wave, uh, wave your face mask at me and uh, I'll know that, uh, that I got some work to do. All right, here we go. Uh, let's go. Why believe in God, number one, it's because of the faith that it takes to doubt God. And what I mean by this statement is this, here's where I'm coming from. I'm going to try to make the case that the biggest arguments against God himself are less grounded reasonably than belief in God. And those arguments against God take as much, maybe even more faith to believe in. That is each objection to God 
smuggles in its own hidden faith premise. I want to try to show you two classic objections to God quickly. First, this is probably the the hottest sort of current argument against God. I've seen, read a lot of this, especially over the last year. It goes sort of like this. Objection number one. An all-good, all-powerful God wouldn't allow evil and suffering. All right? But this statement I want to try to show you is based on a hidden faith premise. And I'll get at it by asking this question. Well, why couldn't an all-good, all-powerful God have reasons for allowing evil and suffering? Put it like this. I'm a dad. I have 14. I mean four kids. It feels like 14 sometimes. Four kids. At uncounted points in their development, I'm sure they could tell you, I allowed something to happen that caused them pain in some way. Uh, For example, I allowed them, terrible dad, to go without dessert like more than once. You know, it caused quite a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth to use a Bible phrase, but I allowed them to suffer a bit by introducing responsibility, things like consequences for their action. I also allowed them to work out some of their problems I could have easily fixed on uh, myself. Daddy, why? They would ask. Well, what's the answer? Well, a little bit to a child when he or she is five, the answer is, it's beyond you to understand. Now, please don't hear in that illustration, please don't hear an effort to trivialize real evil, to diminish true suffering. All I'm saying is this. If it's possible that there exists a wide gap between a five-year-old's brain and a 35-year-old's brain, and to the five-year-old, the reasons for his or her struggle do not make sense and are not reasonable, that does not mean that there aren't reasons that make perfect sense for a more sufficiently developed intellect, right? So if that's true about us, which it is, then why couldn't a super intellect with access to all the information have reasons beyond our limited grasp of understanding? Most of us, let's be honest, we struggle to remember our times tables, our friends' birthdays. Some of you forgot your anniversary this year. Don't do that, right? Is it so hard to believe that at least, therefore, somewhat, some bit, somehow, of the overall existence of humanity, the universe, might be beyond our comprehension? So to say that there couldn't be any good reason for God to allow evil and suffering is a straight-up faith premise. It's strictly a belief, and here's a belief. Put it like this. The belief is, if I can't think of a good reason for why a good God would allow evil and suffering, then that means there couldn't be one. And friends, I want to tell you, that is what's known as a logical fallacy. Logical fallacy. Because I, as a human being, I couldn't imagine a reason. That means a reason can't exist. That's no different than a child saying, because he or she couldn't imagine a reason, that a reason doesn't exist, right? It doesn't hold up. And I'm going to be a little blunt here. At a certain level, it's fairly arrogant to say. So why believe it? It's a leap of pure faith. The point is, the point is this. If you have a God who's big enough to be mad at about evil and suffering, then you have to have a God who's big enough to have a reason that might be beyond you to comprehend. So you can't have it both ways, right? If God is big enough to get mad at because he should have stopped it, then he's got to be big enough to have a reason. But you can't see your grasp. Oh, but you say, because all the evil and suffering in the world, I would take away God. God can't exist. If you take him away, if you say evil and suffering disprove God, now you've actually got a bigger problem, which is this. You've just lost any grounds for the condemnation of evil and suffering. If God goes away, then so does any objective means of judging how the world ought to go. All you've got left once God goes away is pure evolutionary theory. 
All you've got left is nature, the natural order of things. And nature, as William Blake put it, you know this, is red and tooth and claw. The strong eat the weak in nature. Come on, animals suffer and starve in nature. If that's all we've got to point to, what's our basis now for condemning evil, suffering? irony is once you get rid of God because of evil and suffering and let me tell you suffering is a problem no matter what for people of faith for Christians it is but if you take them away you got a bigger problem evil and suffering are now normal and natural and the way things ought to be but I want to tell you you really don't believe that and we really don't live like that I think therefore it takes more faith to believe that evil and suffering are wrong when there is no God than the faith that it takes to believe God exists and he has a good reason for allowing it. And by the way, before we move on to a second objection, let me just say this. Only the Christian faith says that God, through Jesus Christ, has entered the world and knows what it's like to experience evil, to know what death and loss feel like to be crushed under the wheels of injustice. In other words, only the Christian faith says that you have a God who has suffered alongside you in this world. And that out of the greatest suffering and the greatest evil has come, Christians argue, the greatest good, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the offering of salvation for humanity through the gospel of grace. Which means this, means this. Even if I, even if you don't know what the reason for evil and suffering is, we can know at least what it's not. It can't mean that God doesn't care. No. Christians say that God does care about it. He cares what you have gone through, what you are going through. And you can know that because of Jesus. First objection. Second objection to the existence of God is here's one you may hear all the time, especially if you're in school today, that there can't just be one true religion slash all religions are equally valid. Surely you've heard this. And of course, this is a big objection to the Christian God, really for any faith system of any kind that makes exclusive claims of any kind. But in particular, it's a big objection levied against the Christian faith. So let me ask you this. Under what conditions could all religions be equally valid? Like how could that statement be true? Two, 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 two possibilities. First, that there's no God at all, right? As in, because there's no God at all, they're all wrong. Therefore, you know, they're all equally valid. It'd be like debating like which flying purple-headed, five-headed horse, you know, is the smartest. There's no such thing. So, you know, why bother? But second, a statement could be true because maybe, maybe there's a God who really doesn't care about beliefs. Therefore, all religions are equally valid. None of them are really true. This view says that God exists, yeah, But he's like an impersonal force. He doesn't really care what Muslims believe or Buddhists believe or Hindus believe or Christians believe. But there's a big problem with that, which is this. As soon as you say either one of those statements, if you say that all religions are equally valid for any reason, especially the second one, and it doesn't really matter what you believe, let me tell you, that itself is a particular exclusive belief in a particular kind of God. In order to say that all religions are equally valid, to say that there can't be one true faith is to say that your spiritual beliefs are the one true faith, right? To say every viewpoint is wrong is to say yours is right. And even if you say, well, you know, all viewpoints, including my own, those are, those are wrong in an effort to appear more humble and non-judgmental, that's still making a faith claim because you really don't know that for sure. 
A couple of the ways you've heard this objection put over the years, I've heard for years, are two. They're the mountain path example and the blind men and the elephant example. They're, they're sort of two takes, same thought, and you hear these all the time, especially in any philosophy class on a university campus. And they sort of go like this. Here's a mountain path. Mountain path goes like this. All roads, all paths lead to God. The paths, the roads may look like they go different directions, but because God is so big, in the end, they all lead to the top of the mountain where God is waiting. So all roads lead to God, even though they only look like they go different directions, which means this, of course, in in effect, it means when Muslims say that Jesus is not the son of God and to suggest that is pure blasphemy. And when Christians say, no, Jesus is the son of God, that means it only looks like they're saying different things. The blind man and the elephant, mostly the same thing. The story goes like this, comes out of the, the nation of India. Six blind men, six blind men come up to an elephant. They're blind, they can't see. The first blind man takes hold, he finds the trunk of the elephant and he says, an elephant is something long, is something flexible and an elephant shoots water, right? The second blind man grabs a hold of a leg and says, no, 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 an elephant is really thick and sturdy and doesn't move much. The third man grabs the tail, the fourth man grabs the ear, says, no, it's more like a fan and so forth and so on. Each blind man claiming that the elephant is what he feels with his own hands And the moral of the story is this, maybe you can see it, that each man in his blindness can only grab a part of the elephant. Therefore, when it comes to religion, we are all like people, blind people, grasping at God, and no one can really know for sure. Now, that sounds really nice, doesn't it? It sounds really humble, and for sure, God at a certain level, he's got to be beyond us, he's got to be a bit mysterious, as the whole suffering conversation acknowledges, leads us to acknowledge. But these illustrations, these two illustrations, I'm going to say it respectfully, but forthrightly, these illustrations are bad. (laughs) They're bad. They don't work. And here's why. Maybe you've caught it. Put it like this. The only way you can know what an elephant really looks like is if you can see the whole elephant. In other words, to tell the blind men that they can't see reality is to claim that you can Second, the only way to say that all roads lead to God at the top of the mountain is to be the one who is sitting at the top of the mountain and you can see where every road goes. Each of these illustrations, in other words, claims to have knowledge. It says that no one else can have. It is in the end self-defeating and literally nonsensical. So what we need most, let me suggest this to you. What we need most, therefore, when it comes to an examination of exclusive beliefs, faith systems, is to find out which set of exclusive beliefs can turn us into humble people who can be open towards, who can be respectful towards those of us who are different, towards people who are different. As we've seen and said in this series, only the Christian faith gives us a set of exclusive beliefs that can do that because it is based on a man suffering for, dying for, and forgiving his own enemies, see? And if Christians don't act like that, I want to tell you, it's only because we've forgotten, forgotten. Now I could go on with a number of these objections, but the point I'm trying to make, I hope you've seen it, is that it takes more faith to not believe in God than actually to believe. So that's number one, a clue for God is the faith it takes to not believe. Now on to number two. Let's flip it to the other side of the coin and look at a couple of classic arguments for the existence of God. And I'm going to frame them, number two, as the problems that you have without God. 
or in terms of problem for non-belief. That doesn't make sense. We'll get it as we go. Here's problem for non-belief. Number one, problem for non-belief. Number one, it's called the matter argument or the fine tuning of the universe. Now the fine tuning of the universe, if you're not familiar with this, it goes like this, that fundamental constants of physics, things like the speed of light. Okay. Weak and strong nuclear forces, gravitational constant, the solar positioning of the earth itself, along with many other constants. These things all had to be fine-tuned. They all had to fall into this extremely narrow category uh, and range for life to exist. And not only that, they not only had to fall into this range, but all of them had to exist simultaneously in the first place. Take away one of those constants and there wouldn't be life. Think about it like this. Imagine you came upon a radio with like a hundred dials on a setting and the lone station that broadcasts music in the universe can be heard if and only if all 100 dials are fine-tuned to exactly a specific frequency place on the dial. If they're all tuned precisely, simultaneously you get the signal. If even one is off, then you don't. The question is, of course, could all of those dials lined up completely randomly by pure chance and by absolute accident? The answer is, Of course, of course it could have, of course it could have been an accident that the precise location of a hundred dials ended up in the right spot to be the right time where it received one, the lone frequency in the universe. Of course it could have been an accident, but what are realistically speaking, the odds of that happening? Virtually, of course, non-existent. And because of that, because of that, there are constantly, you should know this, new theories being developed within the scientific community, developed to get out of having to play those odds. Let me give you one. Professor at MIT named Dr. Alan Lightman, he's not a believer in God. He wrote an article recently called The Accidental Universe, Science's Crisis of Faith. Science is crisis of faith. And he talked about the compelling nature of this argument, the, the, the matter argument, and the great lakes to which skeptics will go to get out from underneath it. He says the fine-tuning argument is so strong, so many scientists now are coming to believe in something that sounds like it's out of a comic book. It's called the multiverse thesis. Multiverse thesis. Which says that at the Big Bang, an infinite number of universes were created, and we just happened to live in the one where life stuck out of an infinite amount of universes. He's saying there's actually no evidence for that. But scientists, he said, use that theory because it helps them avoid the implications of the fine-tuning argument. He put it like this. He says, quote, there is no way they, scientists, can prove this conjecture of the multiverse. They tell us we must believe in the existence of many other universes, but we have no conceivable way of observing these other universes and cannot prove their existence. Thus, to explain what we see in the world, And in our our mental deductions, we must believe in what we cannot prove. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Alvin Plantinga, he's a Christian philosopher. He used a famous illustration to show how unlikely it is that the universe was fine-tuned without God. He says, all right, imagine, imagine you're playing poker down in Texas. And if I've lost you along the way in this sermon somehow, now I've got you back. Because we're talking about playing poker in Texas in church. All right. He says, anyway, imagine you're playing poker down in Texas. Everybody's around a table, old school game, old school town. They're all wearing their six shooters. And all of a sudden the dealer in the game deals himself 20 straight four ace hands. Yeah. What would happen? Everybody would assume he was cheating and their hands would start to move down toward their holsters, right? 
But imagine a man says, with all the guns pulled on him now, hold on, wait a minute, everyone. I know it looks really suspicious. But what if there is an infinite succession of universes so that for any possible distribution of possible poker hands, there is one universe in which this possibility is realized? <laughs> Come on, we just happen to find ourselves in the one universe where I can deal myself 20 straight hands of four aces without cheating. Why couldn't that be the case? <laughs> Alvin Plenty asked, well, what's going to happen? He said, what's going to happen is they're going to shoot the man. <laughs> they're going to shoot him. Because nobody would assume that without intelligent intervention, that could possibly happen. And you should know that the likelihood of the universe being fine-tuned for human life without intelligent intervention is far less likely than some guy dealing himself 20 straight, four ace hands. If there's a God, the fine-tuning of the universe, which we see and which we cannot deny, if there's a God, that makes sense. If there isn't, how did life get to be this way? You can say it's an accident, but what's more likely. Now, does this prove God? No, no. But at this point, again, it makes more sense. It's more reasonable to believe in God than not. All right. Problem for non-belief number two, but I like this, not the matter argument, but the morality argument. I touched on this one briefly a couple of weeks ago, so I'll be short. Now, how, how, if there is no God, put it like this, if there's no God, here's the question. How, if there is no God, could you say that things like racial or gender inequality are bad things. Now, those things are universal truths we should believe if there is no God. See, over in this country over here, over that culture over there, they don't believe that. Let's say this culture over here, women are oppressed. One racial group is accepted as being inferior to the other. Why is that wrong? Why do you have those moral feelings? Again, you can say, Morgan, I have those because of, you know, evolution, right? I have moral feelings because of evolution. Let me ask you. Don't those other people in that other culture have their moral feelings because of evolution? Why are your accidental, mutated, random evolutionary feelings superior? Now you can say we have moral feelings because of social construction, like our society gives them to us. But that society over there also has socially constructed values. Are your culture's socially constructed values superior to theirs? So then Why? You say, well, there are human rights, Morgan. Okay, fine. On what basis? Let me tell you, hear me. Human rights either exist independently of humans and they are discovered by us and honored by us or or they are made up and enforced by power and power alone. So if there's no God, then who's making them up? Who's enforcing them? On what basis do we put these rights? You know, if all we are is an accident, hear me. And if we have only evolved through an atheistic process, All we have to look to is nature. And I'm pretty sure we don't want to be taking our moral clues, sorry, from creatures who eat their young or who poop on the neighbor's lawn. All right. All I'm saying is this. We went through this at length a few weeks ago. Is that at this point, moral obligation, that is saying things that are right or wrong no matter where you are, moral obligation makes more sense in a world with God. If you don't believe in God, you've got a bigger problem, which is how to account for the universal sense of moral obligation. Problem for non-belief. Last one, number three, the mind argument. It's matter, morality, now mind. This one's a little newer than the rest, but it's pretty compelling. It's starting to gain traction in a number of philosophy and uh, scientific departments on campuses. It goes like this. Let's say you're a person here in the room 
you're watching today, you're skeptical towards God. If that's you, thank you so much, of course, for being here. Maybe you've got friends who are skeptics. We all do, I do. And they tell you, listen, they say, listen, listen, friend, listen, you know, Morgan, John, Sally. I know most people in human history have believed in the supernatural. Most people in history believe in a God, but I don't now because of evolution. Our religious sense just evolved because it helped us survive. I know, I know it seems like we're hardwired to believe in God, but we shouldn't trust our religious sense. And in that same vein, again, let's say that your feelings about morality, you say they're just the result of evolution. We have moral feelings because those things helped our ancestors survive. We feel moral obligation, but that doesn't mean it's there. So we shouldn't trust our feelings of moral obligation. But if that's the case, and now here's my question, if you can't trust your religious sense because it's evolved, and you can't trust your moral sense because it's evolved, why would you turn around and say you can trust your intellectual sense? It's evolved too, right? If all we are is a product of evolutionary theory, then that sense is evolved, and wouldn't our intellectual sense, our brains then, be tricking us like our moral sense or our religious sense? Why should we trust our brains if it tells us, so they tell us there's no God? It's just tricking you too, right? Like your religious sense, your moral sense, you shouldn't trust it. As a matter of fact, quick thought experiment. What if you did that today? What if you didn't trust your brain when it told you there was no God? What if you disbelieved the line of reasoning that brought you to the place where you disbelieved in God? Morgan, now you're saying that you're saying that, that would mean that not believing in God is self-defeating? <laughs> yes, that would be correct. So if we shouldn't trust our religious sense and we shouldn't trust our moral sense, then we shouldn't trust our intellectual sense when it tells us anything, especially if it tells us there's no God. Leon Vieseltier, now the now former editor, not a Christian, of the New Republic, he put it like this. Quote, if reason is a product of natural selection... There's no God, right? How much confidence can we have in a rational argument for natural selection? The power of reason is owed to the independence of reason and to nothing else. Evolutionary biology cannot invoke the power of reason even as it destroys it. Why believe in God? Number one, because of the faith that it takes to not believe in God. Number two, because of the problems that it creates not to. And number three, I'm only gonna touch on this idea today. Number three, it's because of the beauty you see within God. So what if, what if now, all right, Morgan, you made some space here. What if there really is a God? Because if there's not, right, then everything in us, everything around us has to be just a product of pure chance and impersonal forces. And worst of all, that means that love doesn't really exist. See, without God, love Is just your randomly assembled collection of molecules that are slightly different than mine, colliding internally, producing, as C.S. Lewis put it, a psychotic phosphorescence, psychological phosphorescence, sorry. It feels like something, something, I mean, love is psychotic sometimes, right? It feels like something, but love, it's really meaningless. So what if, what if there is a God? What happens to love? The answer is, it depends Depends. Depends on what your view of God is. If God is only unipersonal, like as many traditional religions suggest, like he's like a tribal deity, uh, like the God of Islam suggests, he's only unipersonal, then now power 
Not love is at the heart of the universe, the heart of every single atom, because God had to create before God could ever love. But if God is, as Jesus of Nazareth taught, as Christians have insisted, if God is not unipersonal, but tripersonal, if he is triune, if he is Father, Son, Spirit, as Jesus taught, then God has not only experienced love before he created people, not only did God create out of that love, but if God is triune, as Jesus taught, then God, hear me, put it like this, he's not just loving, oh no, but God is love. God is is love. He doesn't just feel love. He is love. That's why Christians can write, God is love. Why is this important? It's important because of this. Each view of God or non-God has as its center a view of what ultimate reality is. If God's impersonal, doesn't really care about you, then then so is the universe, then so is love. And the greatest thing that could happen to you in an impersonal universe where nothing cares about you is to escape it. Which is what Eastern faiths say. The goal is escape. But if God is not only personal, but God is a community of love within himself, then at the heart of true reality is a loving being. And what does love do, true love do, if not desire to give love away, to share love? And so, so, so. It shouldn't surprise us then that at the very heart of the Christian faith, isn't a logical proposition about faith or non-faith. Isn't the heart of the Christian faith? Isn't an exercise of power? No, but a love story of incredible beauty. A love story of incredible beauty. A story of how this God himself love created other beings, not to dominate them, not to feel love because God already felt that, but to share that love. But as the story goes, those beings rejected that love. They overthrew that love. They moved out into the world determined to live without it. And we have all experienced, have we not, the consequences of that selfishness and self-orientation. We all feel alienated by this world. We feel confused here. We feel alone here many times. We grow frustrated with this world, with time itself. We try to make a home here without really ever able, being able to feel at home. It's like like we're on the outside of a painting outside of a relationship, outside of a waterfall or something, trying to get back inside the beauty that we see. But what does love do if not give of itself? So this God, as the beauty of the Christian story goes, this God entered back into into that painting. He took the plunge into the waterfall. He entered back into this world of relationships to, to give birth to a new community, the story goes. Those who could be was claimed almost like they were born again born again, able to lose their self-centeredness because they could tap into and touch the very heart of reality, love itself. And this God, his name is Jesus. He entered back into the world he made. But again, he was cast out again. Again, he was rejected. Though he had done nothing wrong, he lived perfectly, lovingly, freely to give love away. He was killed for it. Why? What was Jesus getting out of it? Oh, it wasn't money. It wasn't power. It wasn't love. He already had those things. What was he getting out of it? On one hand, not a thing. On the other, though, hopefully, you. Hopefully, me. 
Hopefully us, the beauty of the Christian story is that perfect love came and gave itself away for those who did not deserve it. Those who didn't believe or agree to change them into beings who can now share in and give that love away. The beauty of the Christian story, I want to tell you, has a name. His name is Jesus. You say, Morgan, it's a pretty good story. I think I'd like to maybe believe, like to trust in that story. How can I? Well, I want to tell you. That's what our final two weeks are all about. (laughs) So you're going to have to come back. Maybe next week, watch online. Maybe be here in the room with us. Last thought. If beauty and love mean something, if beauty and love aren't just molecular reactions to psychological phenomena, but beauty and love are real, they make more sense, the most sense, in a world created by a God of love and beauty. I want to tell you, that is a world I'd rather live in. And I think you just might too. You just might too. Would you pray with me today? I'm going to close by praying for a couple of groups of folks. Lord, we just come to you today. We thank you for the, the beauty that we see around us in the world. Christian scriptures tell us that just by looking outside our windows, the sun, the plants, the trees, we can tell things about you. We can see there's a God. We can see that he desires to give, give us beauty, give us a space, give us a world to live in. And Lord, we just come acknowledging your existence today. But also our hearts lead us to know that we don't always live with what's right and what's true. And even without religion or faith or scriptures, we know we've done wrong things. How can we escape? How can we connect with a God who made us and yet that we owe? Well, that's the beauty of your story. That you came fill that gap and void and bring us home into your heart. And so I'm praying today for two categories of people. First is for those who maybe they're skeptical, maybe not sure, maybe checking it out and kicking tires. Lord, I thank you for them so much. I pray today that even beyond some thoughts they have in their head, which are so important, well, they would feel a stirring in their heart to know that above and beyond their intellectual sense, Lord, as you love them, you love them, you love them, that God isn't just loving, but God is love. Lord, you gave yourself for them. Lord, I'm praying for every Christian person here. We would increasingly learn to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and our minds. And as we do that, we would love our neighbor as ourself. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.